Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Today, I'd like to welcome my fantastic guest, Dr. Anne Stangle, who's a social and behavioral scientist and president of Harris Solutions that provides research and advisory services to organizations, companies, and governments to strengthen health equity. She has more than 18 years of international public health experience and is a global researcher that is very well known on stigma. Welcome, Dr. Stengel. I'm so grateful that you took the time to come here today. Thank you so much, Carmen, for having me. I am trying to remember where we first met. I think it could have been in Melbourne, Australia at the AIDS conference in a speaker ready room. Is that where it was or South Africa? It was South Africa. It was in, uh, Joe, Joe, uh, where were we? Durban. (laughs) So it's only been four years. I feel like I've known you longer than that. Well, we met in person there, but we knew each other for several years before. And we, I must, we must've met at some NIH stigma meetings too. I can't remember. Anyways, I thought I'd known you for a a while, but I do remember meeting you in South Africa. Um, So if I'm in an elevator with you, what is your elevator pitch when I ask you, what do you do? Well, I would say that I conduct research that looks at understanding and addressing the social and structural determinants of health that are impeding our access to and uptake uptake of health uh, care services among underserved populations globally. Amazing. Um, So I'm going to show up at your house right now. Okay, that would be nice. (laughs) That would be so fun. We're not really doing that list. I haven't seen anyone in person in a long time. (laughs) It's COVID-19 restrictions, but this is a hypothetical Hypothetical, uh, situation. Fantastical hypothetical situation. If I showed up at your house right now with a time machine built for two and said, and take me back to the time and place where you decided to study stigma. Where would we go? Wow. Well, I would probably take you back to 1998 uh, when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in a town in rural Zimbabwe, uh, south eastern uh, Zimbabwe, and the AIDS epidemic was really sort of raging at the time. And I was a teacher in high school And I basically sort of saw the impact every day on the lives of my students and their families. And literally every day, the um, headmaster would stand up and announce that someone's uh, parent had died. And it was um, just sort of a a crazy time, if you will, to to be alive and to to live in. And one of the things I noticed uh, during that time is that no one would talk about HIV. Everyone Mm -hmm. would say that their relative had died of malaria 
there were these kind of strange posters all over the school that were basically sort of very sensational and weren't really telling people what HIV was. And, and so everyone was very, very scared. And so that sort of got me thinking about public health and public health messaging um, and how it can actually be quite harmful if not done well. Um, and I also had a chance there. I was a science teacher. So basically, they just let me teach the science curriculum. Mm. And HIV was sort of a small bit of that curriculum in their sexual and reproductive health unit. So of course, I expanded that unit and ended up teaching all of the, of the students nine through 12, because none of the other teachers wanted to um, talk about sex. And so I kind of realized at that point how um, all of these students are growing up and they just are um, really at a disadvantage because they have mm-hmm. no knowledge of comprehensive sexual sexuality and sexuality health. And they just had no understanding of how HIV was transmitted. And so that's really what got me started it was that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I was there from 1998 to 2000. That's so interesting. And I, I'd say it's still going on today where we have a lack all over the world, including in Canada, of comprehensive sexuality education. There's so Mm -hmm. much pushback from parents and community groups about teaching young people about sex. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty shocking actually. I, I, I mean, because now we have these amazing global curricula, comprehensive sexuality education curricula that are sort of have the stamp of approval of the UN agencies and they've been, you know, all of the countries have been received these and have had training. And it's just really difficult because teachers aren't necessarily comfortable, you know, integrating these lessons into their curriculum. And so there's a lot of that sort of taboos that comes into play when you're thinking of stigma and stigma around sexuality that are really hindering our ability globally to prepare youth for, you know, life, if you will, and to protect them from um, various illnesses. So Right. And, and it's likely that if youth aren't taught about sex in a stigmatizing, in a non-stigmatizing way, then they're going to grow up with less skills to be able to comfortably talk about sex and safer sex and negotiating sex. Mm-hmm. So we're really setting them up at a disadvantage if we're too nervous or embarrassed to talk about sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that plays out in the data as well. I mean, you can see in the U.S. in states that have very restrictive curricula in terms of what they can teach about sex in schools, you have a much higher teen pregnancy rate. Mm. So I think it's just um, the data is pretty clear um, that that young people need very good and solid and truthful information, and that they you know they they are mature enough to make their own decisions based on that. Uh, information to protect themselves. Mm. That was actually leading right into my first stigma question. (laughs) So Anne, and you just alluded to it or started to discuss this, why does stigma matter? Like who cares? What's the big deal? And you said that, well, actually when we're not teaching young people about sex, we see higher unintended teen pregnancies. What other things would you say to someone that said, who cares about stigma? We have like big other things going on to focus on. Mm -hmm. Well, firstly, I would say that stigma is really an infringement on our basic human right to live a life of dignity and a life free of discrimination. So every one of us around the world is 
um, has that right. And I think stigma infringes upon that right. So first and foremost, that's one of the key reasons why it's, it's uh, a, bad, a bad thing. Secondly, I would say that um, stigma really impedes access to healthcare services. So whether that's a, a young person who might be worried they have an STI, but they delay seeking care because they're worried about what their parent might think about them, or they're worried if it gets around at school that, you know, what might happen to them. And that might have, you know, serious consequences for them in, term mm-hmm. of, in terms of long-term um, problems um, and you know and so on and so forth. It also impedes for people who have stigmatized con- health conditions, uh, like people living with HIV or people who belong to groups that are sort of socially stigmatized, uh, often such as the LGBTQ community. Um, it really can lead people to not access care, not follow through with care, or have challenges adhering to whatever treatment um, they need. And so I think that um, ultimately this really just leads to poorer quality of life and health outcomes for a number of people in our society and oftentimes those who are most vulnerable um, already. So there's a number of reasons why stigma is bad, but I think that uh, that sums it up. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And you mentioned for the next question, which is, so what does it look like? How do I know when it's happening and what are some examples? You mentioned folks might be afraid to talk to their parents about something. So what are, is it um, a reaction or what does stigma look like? And I know that this is your, this is your jam. <laughs> so stigma can take many, many forms. I think if you think about overt kinds of stigma that you might be able to see and recognize. You're talking about, you know, social isolation, gossip, verbal abuse sometimes, and you can have more overt forms of um, what we call experience stigma or discrimination, such as people could lose a job, people could um, lose their access to, uh, lose their rental uh, apartment or uh, those kinds of things if somebody finds out that they're living with a stigmatized condition like HIV, for example. And so the, the forms in which stigma sort of uh, manifests are, are varied and, and some are overt and some are less overt. And so one really, one of the, I think one of the most important aspects of stigma, something that we call internal or internalized stigma. And um, this is when people living with a stigmatized condition often sort of take on the beliefs that are out there in society that um you know, suggest that they're they're bad or they're doing something wrong, and they really internalize that, and that really leads to things like depression and um, self exclusion from society. And we're seeing in the research now that this aspect of stigma, this internalized or self stigma, is really often what's having the biggest impact on people's health. They're not they're feeling like they're not worth worthy of going to care of adhering to their medication and they have poor health outcomes. So those are a few examples of stigma. I would say perhaps another one that's important is anticipated stigma. So oftentimes people they're afraid. So for example, the COVID-19 situation mm-hmm. I think is a really good example because it's a highly infectious disease that is potentially can be deadly and people are afraid to tell their friends and family that they're infected or that they're having mm. symptoms. They're afraid to go to the hospital, you know, and and so I think that um, And what are they afraid of? 
Well, part of it, I think, is part of it is anticipating stigma. Like people might think like, oh, where did you go? Or mm. you didn't follow the guidelines. You weren't wearing a mask. Mm. And so, so there's, being this, there's this issue. Judged. Of, you, yeah, you're judged. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe you're deserving of that because you, you were flouting the rules or, you know, those mm-hmm. kinds of things. So, so mm. there's just a few examples of different kinds of stigma. Why do you think people stigmatize? Well, I think... In all honesty, I, I feel like it must have a, a biological origin. I think mm. there's this issue where, you know, human beings um, and animals need to keep themselves safe. And so I think anytime that there's a difference, that you see a difference between you and somebody else that you think might be a danger to you, I think there's this general tendency to be like, hmm. I'm going to distance myself from that person. So I think that there's this kind of innate biological perhaps mechanism happening there. But then I think it's also something that our society really plays into. We, we often have strong social cultural norms around gender, around, you know, socioeconomics, all of these things. And these really play into the stigmatization process as we're raised and as we grow up we sort of take on what are the taboos in our society what are, you know who are the good people mm-hmm. who are the bad people and so on and so forth and so i mean I'm, I'm oversimplifying it obviously but i think that there's sort of this this cultural aspect as well so we've kind of got this biological aspect this cultural aspect and then when you add on things like fear of an infectious disease shame um, about certain populations who people think are, are not behaving well or maybe putting themselves more at risk. Uh, you know, people who inject drugs, for example, or, you know, there's a lot of kind of value, value laden and a lot of judgment that's placed on certain communities of people. And I think all of those things together really keep stigma going. And then, of course, you have um, what we call sort of structural stigma. Mm-hmm. Where you I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so a lot of countries have laws, for example, that prohibit travel for people living with HIV or mm-hmm. that where um, same-sex behavior is illegal. And in these contexts, obviously, that makes it way more difficult for people to access care to, to you know, and so it really fuels stigma because the, the government itself is sanctioning or saying with those laws that certain people are unworthy, that this is behavior that's criminal. So in a lot of times, they're, it's like they're criminalizing identities as opposed to actions, if you will. So mm. I was reading that there's still, I'm forgetting the exact number, so many countries that have travel restrictions for people with HIV and that actually travel restrictions never really work in the long term. People are going to travel, but they just might not travel with what they need. They might not access healthcare um, because we are, you know, a global system and people, there's mm-hmm. around. Um, and do you think that people just don't have the information or, you know, when we're thinking about solutions. So my next question is Mm -hmm. how can we fix this? How can, how can we get people to not stigmatize? How can we reduce stigma? What what Mm -hmm. do we need? Um, Yeah, that's a great question. I think what we really need is a multi uh, pronged approach. So you can't just focus on the person being stigmatized, for example. That's very, very important. You want to make sure that people who are being stigmatized for a health condition have access to support services. That's a really critical thing. But 
in some ways that's like sort of putting a bandaid on something. You're not really addressing the underlying causes of that stigma. And in this case, we, um, well, I feel like we, we now know that stigma is what we call common at its core. It has a few specific drivers, things like lack of awareness of stigma and its harmful consequences, fear of infection. If we're talking about an infectious disease or judgmental attitudes, these are things that we can sort of tangibly address through interventions and those interventions could include policy changes they could include education they could include public service announcements all sorts of things Um, but the key thing is that any sort of stigma mitigation strategies are attempting to address those underlying drivers of stigma. And so that's sort of the the basic way in which I I think it's important to think about um, how do we do something about stigma? How do we reduce it? And Mm -hmm. we often say that stigma occurs across uh, what we call socioecological levels, right? So it's it's occurring with individuals, it's occurring with families, within communities, within organizations like healthcare, like, like, like hospitals and healthcare settings and schools. And then also you've got this policy level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you're thinking about intervening, you have to think, you know, in my context, what makes the most sense? Okay, we need to focus on, you know, so, so for example, take COVID-19, mm-hmm. um, you know, perhaps the first thing is to think about, okay, what kind of information do we want to share immediately with the populace to make sure that they understand how this disease isn't, is, isn't transmitted, who is affected. And of course, in this case, it's everyone is potentially affected. Um, so there mm-hmm. aren't specific risk groups, if you will. Um, and then you need to think about, you know, what kind of structures do we need to put in place? Do we need to make sure that we are doing something additional for our um, sort of first responders and the folks that are essential workers right now to protect them and also to protect them both from COVID and to protect them from being stigmatized by others. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole bunch of different layers that you need to sort of be thinking about. So if if somebody came up and said, oh, I think people in my community are being really stigmatizing about COVID-19, they're looking at this group of people and thinking they're to blame. Would you have any suggestions or thoughts about when people see stigma happening in their neighborhoods, perhaps, Mm -hmm. um, what they can do? Yeah, I mean, I think the best thing is really to have sort of the communities of people who are affected. So in this case, people, anybody who's who's had COVID-19 and has recovered and is willing to come out and talk about their experience, I think Mm -hmm. that's really important. Uh, We know that from the HIV response that having responses to a disease that are community led is really, really critical. Mm -hmm. And I think in this case, COVID-19 really can and does affect everyone. Everyone is potentially at risk. Um, And that's what we need to make sure people understand. Because of course, when this all first started, there was a lot of xenophobia. I know you had um, written a piece about that in in Canada. And I know we've seen Mm -hmm. that in the US where there was a lot of stigma towards Asian communities. And that's obviously, you can see why people immediately made that association between a disease coming from a certain place. And that's why it's really important. And like WHO and others make sure 
that basically you're not supposed to name a disease based on where Mm -hmm. it comes from and you're not supposed to refer to it in the media. You shouldn't have politicians talking about Mm. a disease that has a specific name um, associated with a place. Um, And that's partially why, because people just are looking for someone to blame for their misfortune and you don't, you don't want to make that an easy target, if you will. And once it happens, you have to have people come out. Like I think um, um, in in Canada, there was that situation where there was a, a community where I think there was a Chinese restaurant that was um, receiving a lot of nasty messages. And so yes. I think the mayor or somebody came out right away and stood up and like went to that restaurant and got takeout. And that's really, really important. Yeah, that was like, so yeah. heartwarming to see that. I know you know, it's still persisting in different regions, which I think Mm -hmm. just shows how pervasive stigma is. I did an interview last week because there was hate crimes in Calgary. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's just sort of shifting because now Calgary has got, or Alberta has got, um, I think the biggest Mm -hmm. challenge is with COVID-19, like right now in Canada, just, you know, it's shifting the the virus. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, you really see that when places are, experiencing health challenges there's mm-hmm. a quick a quick uh, urge to blame mm-hmm. somebody and so and I people who are more marginalized or viewed as less less in a society are often mm-hmm. taking the brunt of that and that is honestly exactly what's happening so before I said everyone is at risk which is true but of course based on your job based on your socioeconomic status you have a much mm-hmm. you potentially have a higher risk of exposure. So what we're starting to see now, at least in the U.S. and and I'm guessing in other places as well, is that you have certain communities like inner city black populations in many cities who are having a much um, higher experience of COVID because they have to take get on buses and they they Mm -hmm. live in crowded, you know, uh, uh, houses and um, and I just read yesterday that the apparently in the indigenous uh, Navajo community in the U.S. now has the higher number of cases in nine states put together. And <sighs> I think, yeah, and I just think that if you look at the communities that are sort of historically disadvantaged, whether it's indigenous communities, communities of color, people living in the poor, you know, sections of town. I mean, these communities are really being hit hard. And the challenge there is that people might start to switch and say, oh, this disease is only affecting these communities. Mm -hmm. And so we're just going to stay away from them and isolate ourselves from them. And this is where government really needs to step in here in the U.S. I think that's probably at the state level. Um, I'm not sure how that would, would work in, in Canada has a you know great national response to stigma. You all even had a whole uh, <laughs> a but there's report. Still, I mean, <laughs> if you read the comments, don't read the comments yeah. under, <laughs> under our chief public health officer of Canada because there's a lot of racist comments. Yeah. It's terrible. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's something that stigma never really goes away. And mm-hmm. I think it's not, it's something that we have to just constantly and consistently think about when there's, whenever there's a public health crisis mm-hmm. in, you know, or, or just in, you know, in your everyday life, you should sort of, you know, be on the lookout for this and, and have the better understanding people have of what stigma is and where it comes from, then it's, it's easier for them to see it and to step in and do something about it. You know, step in and say like, hey, that's not cool. You shouldn't mm-hmm. be, you know, saying that to this person or you, you shouldn't be kicking them out of your store. I mean, it, it does sort of take a village in a way, you know, it's like once people 
can recognize it, you know, and then, then they can stand up against it. Because I think it takes both, obviously, it takes the community of people affected by the disease, but also, you know, a lot of people around them to, to really uh, sort of shine a light on when we see these, this, this sort of stigma and discrimination. Absolutely. I, I really appreciate that you, you said that because, look, it can't only be, for example, LGBTQ people fighting for LGBTQ people's rights. We also mm-hmm. need straight people and cis people. So we also need the people who aren't being stigmatized to sort of join alliances and be led by mm-hmm. the people who are affected, though, because they, they, they know mm-hmm. the, the reality of what, what that might look like and how it might change. Oh, yeah. you're so fantastic. I love talking <laughs> to you. <laughs> so for the last section, I have some wild card questions for you. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Right now, what, is there a favorite Netflix series or movie that you are watching? Oh, I just finished Anne with an E. Um, oh, I haven't seen that. But it is so amazing. And it's about Canada. It I know. I can't believe Edward it. Island. It's gorgeous. And it just kind of felt like, oh, I want to visit there. And it also got me thinking, I have a middle school age daughter who's 12. And I'm thinking, gosh, even in the early 1900s, middle school was the same. Even, oh, so <laughs> even if it's like in a one room schoolhouse versus mm-hmm. it's the same issues. And it's just uh, brilliantly written and uh, filmed. And I, I loved it. I read all the books as a kid and went to see the Anne of Green Gables houses and everything out in PEI. Oh, wow. <laughs> did you see, I, I did all the read books? The books. Oh. I didn't read the books, which is kind of funny. I don't know. I just never You did, could read them I now just, with your daughter? I could. I could. I know she had, she read um, the main book, I guess, and was after we watched the shows, was like, I have to reread that because I don't remember any of this. So I'm not quite sure how close the show is to the books, but it was really just lovely and kind of, you know, I heard it was a things. nice sort of uplifting, uplifting show. Oh, I, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because I did hear really good things about that. Um, okay. The second question I have is if you could go anywhere in the world and have, obviously listeners, we're not going anywhere during COVID-19 travel <laughs> bans. This is a hypothetical question. If you could go anywhere in the world and have dinner with anyone at any point in history, so they could be living or dead, where would you go and who would you take? Oh, wow. Well, I would just love to go out to dinner with RBG, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mm, yes. I, she's one of my <laughs> personal heroes. So that, that probably wouldn't be an exotic place because <laughs> I actually live fairly close to DC. <laughs> um, and I wouldn't really care where we went to dinner. I would just love to spend some time with her. Yeah, she seems amazing. I Yeah, from what I... I hear. So there's not a favorite like restaurant. You'd be like, yo, RBG, let's go eat here. My goodness. (laughs) Well, no pressure. No pressure. (laughs) So I will say that maybe I would invite her up here to Baltimore because there's an amazing Afghan restaurant called the Helmand. And it's probably my favorite restaurant in Baltimore. How did I not go there when I I was there? Maybe we just... Yeah. Did other things. Yeah, no, I came to your house, which is amazing. Um, that's also next time I come. We'll I'll definitely her. take you there. But yeah, that's the, honestly, I think it's the best restaurant in Baltimore. Well, she might listen to this episode. Oh, you never know. This <laughs> never know. actually could happen. You live pretty close. <laughs> you can send her this episode telling her we're shutting her out right now. Okay. So my final question to you is 
What's a wonderful piece of advice that you've received that you'd like to share with the listeners? That I've received? Hmm. Or given? I don't know if it's been received, but I would just like to say, just be kind. Just mm. be kind to people. I, I think that would just, you know, obviously you want to do this all the time, but this is just one of the basic sort of tenets of, you know, being a human being. It's like, just try to be kind to people. And I think if you do that, if that's sort of your mantra, then you will be less likely to stigmatize. You will be more likely to listen and help people in need. And I think that's sort of, you know, what we all need right now. Yeah, I like that. I remember reading, and I know it's, I, who even knows? I mean, I'm sure that it is attributed to somebody somewhere, but the be gentle for everyone you meet is fighting a mighty battle so that be mm-hmm. kind, be gentle. Yeah, I totally appreciate that, especially when we're all locked down in various mm-hmm. capacities. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty challenging. So we could just be a little bit more understanding of people's mm-hmm. humanity and yeah, worth. Thank you. You are a fantastic Dr. Ann Stangle. You can find more about her on the podcast website and a link to her work. And thank you again for taking the time. Thank you so much, Carmen. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me. Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. Mm-hmm.